0: Welcome to the Home Builders Are Doing Great episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. Emily Peck of Axios is also here. Hi. Uh, along with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And Emily, you have been spelunking in economic data.
1: That's me, just traveling around in the economic data. Whee. <laughs>
0: The the water's lovely. Come on in. We are going to be looking at what's happening to new home sales. It is quite surprising. We are going to look at what's happening to the proportion of Americans with disabilities who are working. That is also quite surprising. We are going to talk about the political donations of Sam Bankman Fried, which looked like they were highly illegal. We are in the Slate Plus segment going to have our other shoe drop on the world bank side of things um and talk about aj banga who's going to be the new president of the world bank and why he was nominated we have a fun numbers round with all manner of questions for you about things like gold and platinum so it's all coming up on slate money
2: Hi. but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: Okay, so Emily, let's start with a really interesting little bifurcation in the housing market that you have lighted upon which correct me if I'm wrong here but it basically new houses and new home sales are doing much better than existing home sales
1: yeah that's right Felix I was just looking at this data before we started recording and on Friday the census reported, on sales of new homes. This is new construction. No one's ever lived in the house before. And sales are up, basically. They were up about 7% in January. They're still pretty low. You know, mortgage rates are really high right now, so most people aren't buying houses at all. But the new home market, Felix, is doing better than the existing home market. Sales are up of new homes.
0: Yeah, and we can see this in the stock market with the home builders. All of America's big home builders are doing really well on the stock yeah. market which is not something you would expect right now they are all at like 52 week highs um and so the market doesn't just think it's crap but maybe a little bit better than the second hand home market they think they they're seeing actual optimism here both in the present and I assume in the future since the stock market is you know a way of anticipating how things are going to be in the future
1: yeah, and um, I'll answer the question, why Why is this? It's because um, builders, people selling new homes, cut mortgage rates for buyers. So they do this thing called a mortgage buy-down. So if you buy a new home, you can get a mortgage rate as low as 4.25% right now because of these co- these things called buy-downs. Whereas if you had to buy an existing home, it's more like you pay regular mortgage rate, which is right now... A little bit over six percent i think so it's more appealing to get that lower rate so new homes are more appealing basically
0: so basically the the new home builders they're not instead of just cutting the price of the home mm-hmm. they're cutting the mortgage rate on the home which mm-hmm. has a similar effect on the bottom line but definitely attracts more potential buyers because if you just cut the price, the amount you have to pay every month in terms of mortgage is is still very high if you have a six point something percent mortgage. If you cut the mortgage, then the amount you have to pay every month in mortgage is much lower.
1: Yeah, it's really striking. I, I ran a little chart on this last month. So like, let's say you have a $300,000 house, which we are not familiar with because we live in the New York metropolitan area, but let's say a $300,000 house. So, and you pay a 7% mortgage rate on that house, your monthly payment is almost $2,000, right? But if you get a price cut of $8,000, say, then your monthly payment is like $1,950. Whatever, $50, not a big deal. But if you get a rate buy down and the price of the house stays the same and the rate goes down to 5%, then your monthly payment is $1,600. Did we follow all that? It's a lot less per month.
0: And you're saying that the cost of the vendor of of buying that rate buy down is, mm-hmm. or at least for just a couple of years, is only about $8,000, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of that's an equivalent price cut as far as the seller is concerned.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, yes. And builders have been doing this for, for a long time. Like, they have a lot of experience doing these buy downs and stuff. So that's why it's happening more in the new home market because the home builders, like, know what they're doing, can do it, blah, blah, blah. Whereas, like, regular people selling their houses might not know to do it. Their broker might not know. It's, you know, it's just more
0: weird. And it's, it's more difficult for them because it involves setting up a whole escrow account to pay, effectively pay the extra mortgage amount every mm-hmm. month. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like logistically a pain in the ass. Whereas, as you say, the, the home builders have been set, set up for years to be able to do these things. And, and now they're just sitting there going. We've been waiting all this time for like a market opportunity to let us just roll out this product that we've had in our back pocket all along, but we never really Uh needed to. It was, you know, buying down mortgage rates was never something people particularly wanted when mortgage rates were two and a half percent. Right. But now people want it. And home builders like you want a buy down? We got that
1: yeah and that's better for them because they don't want to lower home prices because if they're selling homes in like a big community or something, it just pisses people off if the prices of the homes currently being sold are much lower than the ones you paid for. like everyone likes it when prices stay the same, right? This is like a sneaky way to do that,
0: e- even if the price has like an asterisk on it, it's still the it's still the the um the price on on the record is yeah.
1: Was. And this is part of the reason, I mean, home prices, like no one really wants to buy a house anymore because mortgage rates are so high. Um, So you'd think like home prices will kind of come crashing down. but they And they have been falling a little, but not really very much. And this is one of the reasons why.
3: You also see lenders across the board offering these new incentives to offset the rate changes. So with, with the sort of real estate, I think the phrase in real estate is, you know, you convince people to marry the house and date the rate. Um, so, <laughs> one, one incentive I think that's been uh, popular is that there, there are lenders who are offering uh, no-cost refinancing within 24 months, and that's still a gamble. Yeah. But if people think that rates are going to not continue to climb past a certain point, it makes you know the buying something now more attractive.
1: Yeah.
0: Which, by the way, I only learned this by actually being offered a refinance and the first time I was offered it i said no because i had no idea how expensive it is to refinance your house it costs like i think it, it cost me what like 7000 dollars or something to refinance and i was like whoa so that's actually a you know a non negligible um free option there that that the lenders are handing of course that applies to existing homes as, as much as it does to new ones um but yeah i think people are definitely looking at mortgage rates which are pretty high by recent historical standards and thinking to themselves if i can manage some way of paying the mortgage for the next 18 months to two years then with any luck um, either the mortgage rate will come down or you know inflation will become entrenched my wage my the wage price spiral will spiral i'll earn more money and it'll be able to make the mortgage payment that way
1: yeah. The, I mean, the flip side of all this is home prices aren't coming down. They're up like, I don't know, what is it, 30, 40% from pre pandemic? A lot of people can't afford houses. And for those people, they want these home prices <laughs> to come down. So all this, it's not shenanigans, but all this, you know, maneuvering with rates and everything is keeping those prices high and keeping a lot of people that could have taken advantage of a slower market out of the market. Well,
0: you know? I mean, The supply the total number of homes isn't really changing that much. For all of these for all the fact that these home builders are making money, like the 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 amount of new home supply into the market is is not changing the total supply of homes in the market that much. The number of people who own their home, the you know, the home ownership ratio is not moving very far, right? So ultimately, I you know, even if home prices came down, I don't think you would see that much massive structural change in like the home ownership rate.
1: Yeah, right. But if home prices came down, more people would be able to buy them. Am, am I missing something?
0: Right. But the total number of houses available for sale would, would would still be the same. And the people, the overwhelming majority of people who buy houses would still right. be homeowners, right? right. The, the number of people who aren't homeowners who buy a home any given year is always pretty small compared to the number of homeowners who like just like trade one house for another
1: yes although during 2020 and 2021 i think more first-time buyers did come into the market
0: Yeah, that was that that was or that is one of the interesting things that you learn i spent more time than i care to admit looking at this question of what is the relationship between mortgage rates and house prices and it's not simple at all um but in general what you tend to find is that when mortgage rates fall dramatically that does tend to increase home prices on the other hand when mortgage rates rise dramatically that doesn't tend <laughs> to decrease home prices you know they yeah. they kind of get stuck <laughs> It's very hard for home prices to come down. We all remember it vividly because we all lived through that, you know, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and so it, obviously it's not unprecedented. But remember that the thing that caused that was like millions and millions of subprime borrowers literally just buying houses they could never afford using yeah. these like ninja loans and stuff, um, and a whole bunch of foreclosures and and um, negative equity and that kind of thing. If you have a normal housing market like we do, where the delinquency and default rates on mortgages is basically zero, it's incredibly rare to see ha- house prices fall, particularly first, even when even when mortgage rates are rising.
1: Yeah, which I think is hard for people to, to come to grips with now, because a lot of the coverage I read has echoes of 08 in it, when there's talk of... You know, home sales falling or home prices dipping. Like there was a chart from Redfin this week that showed homeowners have lost, I don't know, a lot of equity.
0: Well, they've gained again. Yeah, no, the Redfin chart, I wrote about it in my newsletter this week. It shows equity basically going up and to the right, housing wealth going up and to the right, and then a little dip over the past six months mostly mostly in california it has to be said if you exclude california it basically um you know it's almost invisible
1: but the headline on their report was like homeowners lose the most equity in their homes since since '08." so you would be like oh, panic but really it's just <laughs> like compared to what's gone on for the past two years it's just it's like a little blip yeah. R-
0: really really it's just like a, a few towns in california <laughs>
1: For
3: people who are, you know, taking out bigger mortgages, you can still get pretty attractive rates because the lenders, you know, if you have 10 million in net worth, are still offering incentives to buy down interest rates. And so you can still get a 30-year fixed mortgage for, at, you know, 4.6% if you're looking at a
0: jum- jumbo loan. 4.6% is is not what anybody would have considered pretty attractive, like, a year ago. Like, let's put this in context <laughs> –
3: yeah, but in a six point five percent environment, it
0: is. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if you if you're the kind of person who has a private banking relationship and you can borrow against your stock portfolio, and the, and your bank wants to maintain a healthy relationship, and yeah, 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 that's I think that you know that's a whole other planet from like the normal world of you know middle class homeownership.
1: Yeah, that's a planet I am so curious about. Maybe it's boring to everyone else, but like having your own private banker call you and be like, hey, do you want to refinance? Like I had a a friend of mine, I guess, who has a private banking relationship. And when mortgage rates were very, very low, you know, back in 2020, like her banker called her and was like, I'm applying, I'm putting you through for a refinance. Like he just did it for her. And I remember because I was trying to get through to like JP Morgan and Chase to refinance and I couldn't even reach them.
0: It, it's definitely true that, you know, at some point, for, for the very rich, um, your house is an instrument of financial engineering, right? You could just pay cash for your house. You don't need a, mo- a mortgage at all. If you do have a mortgage, what you're doing is you're effectively, like, leveraging up your assets, right? You're borrowing against your house to buy stock is one way of thinking about it instead of, like, selling the stock to buy the house, for cash and so a lot of it is just this question of do i expect to make more money on my stock portfolio than i'm paying an interest on my mortgage and when you're offered a mortgage at, you know two and a quarter percent or something the the answer is obviously yes so you wind up mortgaging your house to buy more stocks um right now it's an interesting question you know and it's it's, it's a little bit riskier to do that trade so you know i would guess i don't know that A lot of rich people buying houses right now are just paying cash because they're like, why would I borrow? Why would I go into debt to buy this house when I can just, you know, sell these stocks, which is still relatively high and turn it into property?
1: Right. And for those deals where they say we will finance your refinance in two years or we'll pay for your refinance. I mean, do you guys think that rates will be lower in two years? I kind of don't think so.
0: Yeah, if if I if I was if I was the rates trader, I might have a view <laughs> on that. I mean, it's it's an interesting question, right? Long-term rates generally aren't nearly as volatile as they have been over the past year. Right? The the way in which mortgage rates spiked from, you know, two and a half percent to six and a half percent in a matter of weeks is is kind of unprecedented. I can't remember that ever happening. Like short-term rates you can see more volatility but the long-term like 10-year rates doesn't generally move anywhere near that much and there's definitely part of me that says we're going to see some kind of mean reversion right and that those long-term rates are going to come back down mortgage rates are ultimately a function of um where you know 10-year treasuries are plus an interesting spread and that spread has gone up too right the spread between mortgage rates and the 10-year treasury rate is much wider now than it normally Mm -hmm. is so even if um rates in general stay relatively high it is definitely possible that mortgage rates will come down just through that spread compressing so um yeah let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about another major macro phenomenon which is the employment rate among disabled folks
3: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Emily. Yeah. You are you are the you are the queen of the macro data this week.
1: I guess so. What's
0: what this week? other data set that you've been you've been spelunking?
1: Um, this is the share of Americans with disabilities who are employed. And in twenty twenty two that share rose to twenty-one point three percent. Which is a record high. Um, Before the pandemic, it was more in the 19% range. So there's this phenomenon during the pandemic where more Americans with disabilities got jobs. And the big picture is that's great news because this is a very, um, this is a segment of the population that faces, you know, Obviously, a lot of difficulties in working because of disabilities, but also this extra layer of bias and discrimination. Employers really don't want to hire people with disabilities, and they find all kinds of ways not to hire them. And I did a bunch of reporting on this earlier this year Um you know, there are job requirements in in job listings that would discourage people from applying to jobs who have disabilities, and and maybe those requirements aren't even really real. Like, you have to lift 50 pounds, but it's like a listing for a receptionist or something. Um, but during the pandemic, kind of like, at least two things are happening. First, more people are going remote, so if you have a disability, it's easier for you to, to work. You don't have to worry about accessibility, anything like that to go into an office, you can just work from home. So that's one advantage. And the other thing that's more controversial is more Americans identified as having disabilities. Um, And there's some research out there that speculates that this could be because more Americans had long COVID and so identified as having a disability. So it's like this good news, but underneath the good news is kind of a, a little bit of a question mark.
3: I think, you know, the, the long COVID question is really interesting because there are, you know, we don't really have a defined set of symptoms or, or you know, a real um, standardized set of diagnostic criteria for it. So the point at which people qualify for things like disability benefits or are in a position to, um, you know, have, have legal standing if an employer is discriminating against them as a disabled worker I think a lot of that stuff is still very gray area.
0: In terms of this data set, this is just people who self report as being disabled, right, having a disability.
1: Yeah, exactly. This is um when they do the survey for the jobs report, there's like six questions on the survey that they the BLS uses to identify Americans with disabilities. And some of them are like do you have trouble seeing or are you blind? Do you have trouble hearing or are you deaf? Um do you do you have difficulty running errands or climbing stairs, stuff like that? So it is self-reported. Um, I think if you did you cut the population by, like, who receives disability benefits, it would be a whole other story. So, yeah, if you have long COVID, some of these questions would definitely apply to you. So you see in the data, like, hundreds of thousands of more people identifying as having disabilities um, during the pandemic and 2022. So the question is now, I guess, like, is that going to be sustained?
0: I think one of the long-lasting legacies of the pandemic is just... Broadly, a greater understanding of and acceptance of um, the fact that both physical and mental problems can happen to any of us. You know, we can wind up getting long COVID, which causes both. Um, And more sort of compassion and understanding. And as you say, a greater realization that work from home can really level the playing field much more than than, than we used to to see pre-pandemic and so yeah people are like yeah i have long covid i have some kind of disability i am working this is all great but yeah i mean let's put this in perspective here 21 percent compared to the overall um employment population ratio which is what 65 something like that is you know there's still a long way to go
1: oh yeah and i mean traditionally the unemployment rate uh, for people with a disability is far higher than for people without a disability.
0: So, yeah, so the question here, because if you if you look at your amazing pretty chart, there is a quite startling up and to the right spike in this employment to population ratio among disabled people. Um, the question is, is this structural or is this cyclical? Is it going to come back down to, is it going to mean revert Or is this like the beginning of a new glorious age where um, people are happy self-identifying as having disabilities, people are happy working from home, employers are happy for people with disabilities to work for them and to work from home, and now we can expect this up into the right trend to continue?
1: I mean, it's a really good question the it looks like i mean part of the reason in addition to the long covid reason and the remote work reason is that the labor market's really tight and when the labor market is really tight it pulls in people who normally have a hard time get getting jobs so that would include americans with disabilities would include you know people with like who spend time in prison things like that um and there's not much indication that the labor market is going to get less tight in the coming years so that's like Score one in the column for this chart to kind of stay up and not go back down. And then on the other side of that is the long COVID question. People start recovering from long COVID. Does that mean this population kind of declines, which is good news also? And But then this number declines too.
3: Yeah, I don't think anybody thinks that we're all going back to 100% in office work either. So if remote is here to stay on some level, Mm -hmm. that has to
0: be an advantage. Yeah,
1: I think it's going to stay a little high. Yeah.
0: That's good. All right. Let's all um, embrace the way in which the pandemic created a more diverse workforce. We'll be right back after an ad. All right, Elizabeth, you got very excited about the new charges that were unveiled (laughs) against Sam Bankman-Fried because now he's not just being accused of fraud, he's also being accused of um, violating political donation laws. And you're like, oh, now I'm interested.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure excited is really the the right word, but he's, uh, (laughs) uh, he's now facing four counts of conspiracy to defraud the Federal Election Commission because... Uh, he used some employees of both, I think, both Alameda and some of the other vehicles that he managed to make donations in, in a way that's um, it's called using a straw donor, where basically you have one person who's, or an organization that's funding donations to political candidates or causes, uh, but under somebody else's name so that they can exceed the federally mandated limits for how much you, you can give a candidate. And this is very, very straightforwardly illegal. So now he's in trouble for that in addition to the 458 other things that he's done that are sketchy.
1: Did I read that he had, like, someone, a go-to straw donor for Republican candidates and a go-to straw donor for Democratic candidates
0: yeah that was right it was ryan salame was the republican one and nishad patel was the democratic one i think but then he also made his own donations
3: yeah i think he's he's more widely seen as a, as a kind of democratic activist just because most people who are in the the crypto world tend to skew republican uh and and so he was unusual in that respect but he was giving money to democrats and republicans and Lobbying both sides.
0: No one knew about the Republicans, right? Like before all of the, before everything blew up, um, he was known as a major Democratic donor. He was on the record saying he wanted to spend a billion dollars in the next general election supporting Democrats. He was, you know, uh, closely associated with, I think both his brother and his mother were like had political action committees and stuff that were supporting Democrats. Like he was a known lefty. Um, And then after everything blew up, he gave this interview where he was like, well, actually, I was donating to Republicans as well. I just kept it very quiet. And now it's, you know, this is that side of things is coming out. Um, And the real question I have for you is like, if he's doing very, very quiet donations to Republicans via straw men. How does that help him? Like, do the Republicans even know that it's coming from him? Like Oh yeah, like, they know. The, the whole the whole point of giving money to Republicans <laughs> is that like they'll feel beholden to you somehow. Yeah,
3: no, they know. I, I think when, when people engage in this, that's that's sort of the point. They they know that they're funneling more money than they're allowed to to the candidate, and the candidate is is aware of it. I think most of the candidates that I've worked with are aware, you know, even if they get, you know, somebody who hits the federal limit. Uh, especially in down ballot races, uh, they'll, they're familiar with who those people are, because for the most part, those checks are not coming over the transom. You know, there's a concerted effort to get large donors to donate. And so their fundraising people absolutely knew that was happening.
0: So is, is it basically the case that there's like two types of members of Congress, the ones who will Quietly be happy when someone gives more than they're allowed to, and the ones that will immediately report that person to the FEC.
3: Yeah, well, theoretically, they're they're supposed to immediately report that person to the FEC, or they're in trouble too. I'm sure there there are people who get away with it, but uh, if you get caught, you're you're in big trouble. It's not a minor thing. And you know, in theory, he was doing all this to influence uh, the way in which the crypto industry is regulated, but. You can go through normal lobbying channels and do that. This was, a, you know, a very risky strategy on his part.
0: Well, I mean, you can. I think. I think the lesson of um, crypto lobbying is that we've seen a huge amount of it, not just from FTX, but also from you know Coinbase and everyone else, and it has had no visible result in terms of legislation making it easier for crypto anything to do anything and in fact right now of course in the wake of the FTX collapse there's just a massive backlash and and both regulators and congress have no particular desire to um to listen to crypto lobbyists at all um it, but yeah i think you're right that he was just trying every possible avenue he could to try and influence congress to make it easier for him to do business in the united states um and then it turned out that he was per the complaint defrauding his own customers from 2019 onwards um and it just and i think that you know i think in a weird way it it reflects well on congress that despite these enormous sums being spent on lobbying and donations and everything congress never actually really got close to passing the kind of laws that the crypto industry wanted them to pass.
3: Well, also, the, the kind of laws that they wanted were so sort of out there that I, I think, you know, he had two meetings with Gary Gensler, and one to talk about a new structure that he wanted to, you know, implement for his primary exchange. And Gensler told him, you know, you're de- you wouldn't make it past slide two without this being knocked down. You know, I, I think they, they weren't asking for things that were sort of reasonable or incremental. So... I, you know, I, I agree with you that the, the lobbying didn't really yield anything for the crypto industry, but I, I think that's more a function of Congress being very slow and people still not understanding crypto. And now, thanks to the FTX collapse, there's more skepticism and it's just going to take longer.
1: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you could say the lobbying didn't work because no laws were passed. On the other hand, you could say the lobbying did work because no laws were passed, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. a lot of these companies got to just do whatever for a long time um and the reason that the SEC is cracking down now is because because of the FTX collapse because so many things went wrong they're like well now we should step in you know the house is on fire we should we should put it out
0: right but but the the reason the ft the reason the sec is stepping in now is because you know there were a lot of illegal things going on that were illegal all along and you didn't need laws to be passed for these things to be illegal
1: yeah yeah
0: and, and so like you, i don't think we needed any laws to be passed saying like crypto is illegal because most of it was illegal all along under the howey test um but also most of it wasn't in the United States, right? Even FTX was basically based in the Bahamas. Um, their US subsidiary was tiny. You know, I think the the Congress, if anything, was erring on the side of being too solicitous of the crypto industry. You know, we had people like Kirsten Gillibrand coming out and saying, Oh yeah, we need to make things clear that you know this and that and the other is all legal and should be lightly regulated because crypto is the future and we need to allow innovation otherwise all of the innovation is going to happen somewhere else and all of those kind of arguments that got trotted out pre-ftx um but yeah like as you say congress moves slowly no one seemed very excited about making it making these kind of radical reforms to the financial regulatory superstructure of america happen overnight and so they didn't and and that in hindsight turns out to have been a good thing and the vast majority of americans were basically unscathed by the crypto winter and the crypto collapse
1: i mean it does seem like the regulators could have done more 100 to rein in a lot of these rogue businesses um gemini earn or whatever other ones block yeah. like they took their time raining back things that were clearly bad and illegal and people did yeah. lose money and it almost seemed like no one wanted to stop the party while it was happening then once you know sam bankman freed kind of ended everything they were like well now now we can step in because that's just sort of like a very that's kind of the way it always goes we were just talking about housing it's kind of the same thing like the regulations all came after the party ended and everyone lost all their money and stuff. And they work now.
0: Yeah. I mean, we do need to make the distinction, right, between legislators and regulators. The, the, you know, legislators did nothing and that was fine because the only thing they could have done was really make it easier for the crypto industry rather than make it harder because as we have discovered, everything they were doing was already illegal. Mm. Um regulators um yeah they saw um they had their bosses who is congress you know surprisingly embraced this idea that crypto was a form of positive financial innovation um yeah especially on the republican Mm -hmm. side of things which interestingly enough they were like yeah this is broadly a good thing and who how dare you try and crack down on the most innovative thing to happen to money in a thousand years or whatever the argument was and so politically i think it was hard for the regulators to be too aggressive now politically obviously it's much easier so that's what they're doing
3: yeah i think also there's an incentive uh for understaffed agencies to only enforce things when there's a clear-cut case you know, it's it's sort of why the SEC likes to prosecute insider trading, because it's an easier thing to explain to the public and to
1: taxpayers
3: than a lot of other
1: types of financial crime. So just to back up these new charges against SBF, what what does this mean for his case? Does it just mean he's gonna have a harder time? We should say he pled not guilty to the old charges. We do we know how he's pled to the new? charges like what's it going to mean for his case
0: yeah he, he's going to fight the charges there's going to be a there's going to be a big trial uh it's going to take a long time there's going to be a lot of press it's all going to happen right here in the southern district of new york and i'm just going to come out and say that you know all signs point to many many guilty verdicts you know it, it seems like completely just beyond um, the realm of possibility that he will be found not guilty on all counts. There are so many different counts here and everyone who worked with him is a, cooper- is a cooperating witness against him <laughs> at this point.
1: <laughs> Another reminder that your friends from work are not your friends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're doing crime. <laughs> Or your polycule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even your polycule is not really your friend. <laughs>
1: i read that sam bankman frieds um like his number two guy they like met in math camp in in high school and i just (laughs) that's just so nerdy i couldn't believe it and then they lost touch but then met up again at mit like i just thinking like what went wrong fellas this is the american (laughs) dream math camp to mit like what are you doing why Um, did you go to crime
0: well they all made billions like you know (laughs) and they're effective altruists
1: oh right um, so Elizabeth, why wouldn't he just n- do it the normal way and pay lobbyists to lobby for him and not do it the illegal way and do these like shadow donations and whatnot? I don't understand what the advantage is,
3: yeah, well, they were they were paying lobbyists the I, I think the it's just a, of a piece with his overall hubris. You know, you could ask the same question about, the other shenanigans that he's been involved in that that are pretty straightforward bad shit. So I, I think he just thought he could get away with it all. Or, you know, he had this sort of mentality that once you reach a certain level of success and wealth, that all these things just don't apply to you. That, you know, you're you're operating in a different
0: level. So which is kind of true, right? It's it's hard to think of very many donors who've been prosecuted for violating FEC rules, like especially with the explosion of super PACs and whatnot. It's so easy to get around those rules. Like you really need to be particularly just lazy to wind up violating these things. Like, come on, the are there. You can follow the laws very easily. Yeah.
1: Well, he wouldn't have gotten in trouble for all this had he not defrauded all his customers and stolen funds.
0: Right. I think, I think that's exactly right. You, what happens is that you wind up getting in trouble for one thing, and then yeah. they pile on a bunch of FEC violations for shits and giggles.
1: Right. That's what I was saying about that Trump case where um, he was like they were paying people in, with cars and apartments and stuff, it seems like, beside the point to everything else that went on with Trump, but it's like an easy case to prosecute.
0: Um, let's have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? Uh-huh. What is it? 16. Okay.
1: Gallons. 16 gallons. That is annual Is this a milk number? Yes. It is the milk <laughs> real dairy milk. That's annual dairy milk consumption per capita in 2021, 16 gallons. Back in 1980, the number was like closer to 30. And the reason this is newsy is because the FDA is now proposing to allow companies to use the word milk to describe oat milk, soy milk, almond milk, all the other kinds of milk.
0: Which, of course, they have been doing for years, right? Yeah. The, the, the horse is bolted from that particular stable. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bit retroactively, oh, yeah, this thing you've been doing for years is fine. But I'm just going to come out and say that the per capita consumption of Nut milks and oat milk and that kind of stuff is is going to be a is still a, a sort of a fraction of a gallon. It's not. It's not like we are now that difference between thirty one gallons and sixteen gallons is like is now in almond milk. It's yeah. not. It's just yeah. we're drinking less milk.
1: Yeah, or I don't know what right. people are drinking instead of milk. I mean, Felix is is you're drinking wine instead of milk. I'm assuming
0: <laughs> exactly. I'm drinking wine and cereal <laughs> I'm every morning. Wine instead of milk. <laughs> I, I, go into, I go into my local coffee shop and I'm like, can you make me a latte with like a, a muscadet? <laughs> um, Elizabeth, do you have a number?
3: Uh, yeah, my number is 746 and it's uh, $746. And that's the average markup on an auto loan that you get if you're a black customer versus $349 if you're not a black customer. So the easy way to sort of eliminate this racial discrimination would be to end markups on auto loans that are at the discretion of the dealer. Uh, but we, we're not doing that right now. So there's a persistent discrimination problem.
0: So wait, explain explain this markup thing. I don't understand it.
3: So if, if you buy a car and you receive financing on it, you generally get an overall rate. That's the sort of all-in rate. But you don't necessarily have transparency into how much of that is coming from the lender and how much of it is discretionary markup from the dealer. So, and because it's legal for the dealer to mark up to a certain level um, at their discretion, you know, the the question is, you know, why do some people get markups, other people don't? Uh, And in this case, it appears that across the board, dealers are discriminating against black buyers, even when you control for other factors
0: so as i understand it auto loans are a profit center for dealers like the last time i bought a car they were like and then we're gonna have to go through this whole financing palaver and i was like actually it's not a very expensive car i can pay for it in cash and there, and they said If you pay for it in cash, we're going to have to charge you much more because we make money by offering you loans. And so just apply for the loan, get the loan, and then pay it off in six months' time, and then everyone's going to be happy. But you need to get the loan because that's going to make your car cheaper. But I guess what you're saying is that, like, the reason they could reduce the price of the car was because they're making money on that loan that like you know the the lender is basically giving them a kickback and you're saying that they take more of a kickback on loans to black folks than they do from anyone else is that basically it
3: no they they can outside of the loan they can mark up the overall cost of the financing um so even apart from the lenders terms
1: like a fee or something like fees yeah so they add extra fees to black buyers versus white buyers yep
3: you're 20% more likely to get um to receive a markup if you're a black buyer than if you're not a black buyer.
1: So this is just like a random extra cost? Yeah. Yeah, it's because they don't have there there's usually not a there's
3: not really a st- standard criteria for determining markup. So it's it's the when the dealer is sticking a finger in the air and making a judgment about the customer.
0: Wow. Like car car financing is one of two areas of finance that every time I look at it, my brain melts and I don't, and I do not understand. The other one is annuities. There are, there, there are these two parts of finance where I'm like, I really need to get my brain around how this works. And I look at car loans and I'm like, I do not understand. And car leases, especially. And I'm like, I do not understand how car leases work. They are so opaque. And then the other one is annuities. And, Every, like the proportion of american households who buy cars is you know it's got to be close to 100 it's like everyone does it um you know if they don't live in new york city and it's just it's so opaque and it's so hard to understand and yeah a bit a lot more just basic sort of templates issued by the cfpb that have to make it very clear how everything works and don't allow all of these kind of hidden shenanigans would be great. And I don't understand why we don't have that.
3: Car lobbyist.
0: (laughs) Um, Oh, I I should have a number too. I have a number. Ha, this is a good one. My number is 1,545. And this is a platinum coin number. Uh, This has got nothing to do with the debt ceiling, though. Um this is the new platinum coin that is being issued by the US Mint to commemorate the first amendment and apparently the first amendment has something to do with acorns so it has a bunch of acorns on the coin um if either of you can tell me what the connection is between acorns and the first amendment um tell me otherwise we will leave it to our good listeners to explain what the connection is and this is a hundred dollar coin, as in it's uh, you know the uh, it's legal tender in the United States, and you can spend it to buy a hundred worth hundred dollars worth of stuff. But no one would ever do that because the cost of the coin is one thousand five hundred and forty five dollars. What? Which is not which is not only more than a hundred dollars, but it's also more than like nine hundred and fifty dollars, which is the cost of an ounce of platinum. That this coin has an ounce of platinum in it so you know people people are buying it for the precious metal value not for the coin value
1: how many are they making
0: as many as there's demand for
1: Huh. okay
0: but the secondary market like if you want like once they start getting traded it's going to be traded for less than the um brand new price people aren't going to buy An ounce of platinum for one thousand five hundred and forty-five dollars when they can buy like a platinum bar for like nine hundred and fifty dollars with the same amount of platinum in it, and I don't think the numismatic value of having a coin with acorns on it is worth (laughs) you know more than five hundred dollars. So it'll be interesting to me to see how many of these coins the mint actually sells because they seem to be pricing them pretty aggressively. Yeah,
1: that's so weird. Also,
0: by the way. Another thing which I want to ask Slate Money listeners, please write in com. Why is platinum so much cheaper than gold right now? Like, historically, platinum has always been more expensive than gold. And, you know, and if you look at, like, the American Express ladder of cards. You know, it starts at green and then it goes up to silver and then goes up to gold and then it like platinum is the top. And the reason platinum is the top is because everyone understands that platinum is a more precious metal than gold. But platinum has been much cheaper than gold for some years now and the difference between them is now enormous. Um, you know, platinum is, as I say, it's less than a thousand dollars an ounce. Gold is what, fourteen fifty, something like that? So yeah, what's going on there? Someone who understands the dynamics of precious metals. Please write in and explain what's happening in the precious metal market, because I would love to know. Um so yeah, we are going to talk about R.J. Banga, the new president of the World Bank in Slate Plus. It happened very quickly. It's been announced. Um he hasn't officially been voted on, but he's going to be the new president. Um and other than that, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks to Anna Phillips for producing. And we will be back next week with even more Slate Money.